Welcome to the Grace for This City podcast. We're helping you turn your cities upside down. Hey, I'm your host, Justin Goff. Stay tuned. We got a great show for you today. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Grace for This City podcast, and I am your host, Justin. And we're so glad that you are here, friends. I'm telling you, you are helping to make this possible. We're in over 155 nations, and I want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping to make this podcast possible. All right, let's jump back into our thought today. And uh, I'm talking about not appointed to wrath. Guess what? You and I are not appointed to wrath. Let's get some Bible on that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And here, Paul is writing to the believers right here. Uh, We would call them the Thessalonians. These were believers. These are born again. These are brothers and sisters in Christ right here. And uh, Paul is telling them, listen, there's a group of people, the Macedonians, they've been talking about you, and they have noticed how you have postured yourself. They had this imminency about the return of Jesus, just like you and I are supposed to have. And other people were recognizing it and then praising them for it. And so we jump into that thought here in verse 10. Uh, and to wait for his son from heaven. That was one of the things the Macedonians were praising the Thessalonians for is their posture of their anticipation for his imminent return, whom God raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Even who? They're waiting for even who? Even who? Jesus. And what does he do? Who delivers us from the wrath, come on, to come. Again, I opened last week with this thought from Romans, but here we see it in Thessalonians. There's a little detail here that I think a lot of people miss is that even though you're born again, uh, he's saying you need to have this hope. In fact, we're told to encourage one another with these concepts that you're not appointed to wrath. Why? Because you're born again. Uh, You are the church. You're the ecclesia. You're the bride of Christ. You are not, you do not have an appointment with the wrath of God. We looked at the verse last week that says, who could stand before him? Oh, what did it say? Who could stand before his indignation? Nam chapter one said, who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Nobody, nobody's the answer. And here Paul's writing to them. And he's saying, look, encourage people, encourage the believers with this. There is a judgment coming, but guess what? You're not appointed to it. Jesus is going to what? Deliver us, snatch us, harponzo, rapture us right before the wrath is poured out on the earth. Hallelujah. Now, look at this. In Nahum 1, 2, Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries And he reserves what? If you're familiar with this verse, he reserves wrath for his enemies. Wow. Well, just to make the point even more obvious here, the enemies of God are the ones who will suffer under his wrath. Whereas where we just read in 1 Thessalonians, guess what? 
he doesn't call us uh, slaves. What does he call us? He calls us friends. Why? Because we're betrothed to Jesus. I mean, we are earmarked to be part of the family. We are children of God now, the Bible says. And Jesus is coming to deliver us from the wrath to come. Listen, what is that period of wrath? That's the tribulation period. Seven earth years, friend. Jesus will come before that begins. And we've actually did several series on this when we were dealing about the, uh, with the, uh, let's see, what did we call those? Uh, defection or departure. We talked about the rapture of the church. And we saw the timeline here that the church has to be raptured. There has to be a withdrawal. There has to be something taken out of the way in order for the Antichrist to be revealed. Then we looked at Revelation where actually the saints are right there in heaven as uh, Jesus. Now, John saw this, this future prophetic event. The, the, the um, saints were there as typified by the elders that were present with their crowns on. And we all witnessed Jesus grab the scroll and he cracks that first seal. Well, guess what the result of that first seal being opened is? The Antichrist is released then to go about what he is going to do. So we're all in heaven watching that transpire. All right, so we know we're delivered from the wrath that is to come upon the earth. We're talking about that. We're looking at this from some various angles. Now, I want to go back to a thought that I left you on last week because this is kind of a, it's a, um, it's a sideline thought, but we need to understand a little bit about how this works because uh, God is judge. Everything, absolutely everything, comes before the judge. That's what we are talking about last week. But some people think God is so sovereign that he's the causative agent of absolutely everything. We use the analogy of somebody who is self-imploding because of their overindulgence on Twinkies. All right. And you can't say that God caused your body to break down upon itself because he forced you into eating a ridiculous amount of Twinkies, you know, basically uh, self-sabotaging yourself on improper foods. You can't blame God. You can't claim sovereignty in a situation like that. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. We looked at Galatians where it says God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that he shall reap. We talked about that the Lord weighs the hearts. And he set something up here in Deuteronomy 30. We saw, he said, I call witnesses heaven and earth. He says, choose life. Okay, that's the answer to the test. But if you choose the curse, you're going to receive death. If you choose the blessing, you will receive life. But notice the detail of the witnesses. Yes, God's sovereign in the fact that he's distinct and separate. But he's not sovereign in the fact that he's absolutely orchestrating every little element of your life. And if you die from Twinkie overdose, God, you can't claim God's sovereignty in that matter. No, because his word came before and tried to counsel you, correct you, warn you, caution you. He sent not just one, not just two. He sent many people. He sent his word. I mean, his word's crying out, just sitting right there. You know, you probably have 30 Bibles in your house. You know, if you have one, you have enough. But I'm just saying... His word is calling out. You know, if you ever watch something on TV or, you, you know, you just go here, just practical common sense, some people blow right past that and then try and blame God. We're saying that you can't do that. You can't blame God. You can't blame God. Now, he's going to help you, and he's merciful, and he's compassionate. And so that's why his word continues to speak to you, giving you chance after chance after chance, 
giving you wisdom and counsel constantly, constantly. Change, change, take good counsel, adjust this, adjust that, stop that, don't go there, don't, don't do that. If you ask him for an answer, he's going to help you, friends. Some people blow right past that and then want to blame him. Well, he's not going to be mocked. He's not going to be mocked. If you die from a sugar overdose, God will not be mocked when there was good counsel set out ahead of you. All right, so that's what we're talking about here. And then we looked at some scripture to substantiate that. Remember from Exodus 12, I left you on a cliffhanger. And it looks like if you read Exodus 12 and 13, and then you go to verse 23, whoa, we're like, wait a second, because 12 and 13, it looks like God's the one doing the destroying. That's making him look like the causative or the active agent. But then in verse 23, we found out, wait, there's this other character in here actually called the destroyer. It's not even God. All right, let's pick it up right there. So who's actually doing the striking? Verse 23 says, when I, uh, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Well, who's doing the striking? Because it, it kind of sounds like the Lord was doing it, but now he's saying, well, I won't allow the destroyer to come and strike you if the blood has been applied. Well, the Bible calls this character, what you, some people know the death angel, as the destroyer. Well, very interesting because in Revelation 9-11, it says, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. This is Revelation 9-1-1. Now, the word Abaddon in the Hebrew, that's his Hebrew name. He's known in Hebrew as Abaddon, known in Greek as Apollyon. I, th- I think this verse is very interesting because it covers the Hebrew and the Greek. Actually, very fascinating revelation here how the Lord orchestrated this. Because if you're ever confused, if it was God actually doing something, if God was the causative agent, if he was the active agent, say, if he was literally the one slaughtering all these people, he said, I want you to know for all time that I'm not that person in the Old Testament and I'm not that person in the New Testament. There's actually the destroyer who goes around uh, looking to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember that in John 10, Jesus even recognizes this person that's prowling around looking for whom he might devour. Well, we know this character as the destroyer. This is the enemy. This is Satan. And uh, it kind of looks like that him and God are working together, but we're going to see that that's not true. Um, but right here, let me give you this, Abaddon. In that Hebrew name, it means king of the army of locusts. Well, that's not the heavenly father, is it? It's not King Jesus either. These names mean destroyer or, in the Hebrew, to cause to perish. That's why some people call him the death angel, because to cause to perish. That's what that word means. Now, here's a very important statement in light of all this. God passes or executes judgment that allows the destroyer access. God passes or executes judgment that allows the destroyer access. We found out in Psalm 89 that judgment is the habitation of his throne. In Romans 14, 10, it says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat so that each one of us, in verse 12, this is Romans 14, 12, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. First Peter 4, 5 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and 
the dead. Uh, Revelation 115, uh, there was a vision of him, and uh, John saw that his feet were like fine brass. Well, the Greek compound word there used in, in this passage, it meant judgment. It was a symbol for judgment uh, and for prayer, but it was a symbol for judgment. Now, here's, here's the thing. God upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1.3. He is the legal architect. But like I read to you last week, Proverbs 19.3, it says that man twists his way, though, but then blames God for it. The ETR says people ruin their lives with the foolish things they do, and then they blame the Lord for it. Listen, you can't hold God to blame for, this, for decisions that you and I make. But here's what God is doing. Everything, absolutely everything, comes before the judge. He's the judge of all things. He is weighing the hearts of man. And so when he uh, has to look at your situation, he'll say, man, I've warned this guy. I've warned this guy. I've warned this guy. I've, I've got my word to him. My word is there. My word's been speaking. My, uh, my counsel has been evident in this situation, but whoever didn't heed my counsel. Well, a time of judgment will come up. Your, your situation will come up before the Lord because he cares. He cares for you, cares about other things. He cares about other people. Sometimes people's reckless life endangers the lives of others, and so God's got to get involved because now the safety and well-being of other people are involved. So he's weighing the hearts. He's judging our hearts. He's examining our hearts, and a judgment is going to be made. And when he makes a judgment, and I suppose in his sovereignty, he is sovereign in this sense. And he's the only one, friends, that you would want judging your situation. But just because a judgment is made based upon the seeds you have sown or the actions you have taken doesn't mean that God is the one causing the destruction in your life. Simply the judgment says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. God says, I have to allow the reality of this man's decisions to come into his life. That is permissive. Is Permitting something the same as causing it is permitting something the same as causing it. Well, the answer to that is no, friends. Now, some people still will argue that God is sovereign and made me die from imploding on Twinkies. But that's just foolish talk. That's not true, and you know that. But people sometimes refuse to take responsibilities for their actions and God seems to be the easy one to blame. Now, let me ask you a question here. Did God cause Eve and Adam to eat of the tree, or did he allow them to eat of it? Did he cause them to eat it, or did he allow them to eat it? Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Verse 17, But... Of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the Bible says a day is as a thousand years. Did you know that Adam and Eve died just shy of living 1,000 years? They died the same day they ate of that tree. They died spiritually and they died physically. But here's, I want, I want to get back to this. So 
God just told them, don't eat of this tree. Did he make them eat of the tree when he just told them, don't eat of this tree? Listen, some people make God out to be some psychotic schizophrenic. He gave them the word. He upholds all things by the word of his power. This is what we know as the laws that govern the universe. And he said, don't eat of this tree. Did he make Eve and Adam eat of that tree? No, friends. Did he allow it? He definitely did. Was it his will for them to eat of it? Was it God's will? Um, let me pull up a Bible here. I don't have my, forgot to grab my Bible before I came into the studio. Let me pull up this verse real quick. Look at this in uh, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Has God indeed said? I don't know if he talked like that. But here's this serpent. He slithered up. Or at this point, he may have walked up. But he said, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat of it. Wow, here's the woman. She even knows right here she's not supposed to eat of the tree because God said, don't eat of this tree. So the question is, did he cause them to eat of the tree or did he allow them to eat of the tree? Did God stop Adam and Eve from eating the fruit? No, he did not. In fact, he could have, I suppose. He could have swept in right there and said, Eve, no, stop. But that's not how God works, is it? And it's actually quite fascinating, uh, the agency of free will that you and I have. Wow, it's actually fascinating that he has not forced us. Thank you. Bob brought my Bible that he has not forced us to be robotic friends. It's actually a really powerful privilege that you and I have to be created with the free will that we have been given. Now, um, God said, let us make man and let them have dominion over everything. This is why I didn't swoop in and stop this situation or robotically make Adam and Eve do something uh, in this particular situation. He gave them his word, and he intended them to heed, hear, and obey. God allowed it to happen because it was in man's authority to do something about it. Can God allow something to happen that is against his will? That would be another thought that we should bring into this. Can or does God allow something to happen that is against his will? Well, the obvious answer to that question is yes. Because again, and I didn't cover all the scriptures, but you can do a scripture study about how God weighs the hearts of man. We read that verse where it says, man thinks everything he does is good, but God weighs the heart. There is a way that seems right unto a man. Remember that verse in, was that Proverbs? There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it may lead to death meaning man doesn't understand absolutely everything because we're being deceived. We are being tempted. We have our own lusts, pride of our own um, life. 
Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We think we got everything understood. We think we know everything. We don't need God's help. And sometimes that gets us into trouble. But that's the reality that you and I live in because we've been given dominion over this realm. And here, Adam and Eve, they, they, they totally messed that up. That's okay. Jesus came back to redeem us, but um, gave up. What a mighty privilege. They gave it over to the devil. But we're asking this question because it is a prevailing thought that if God allows something, it must be his will. Again, this comes from an erroneous belief that God is in control of absolutely everything. He is not in control of absolutely everything. He's the judge of everything. Everything, absolutely everything comes before him, but he is not in control of everything. God is simply just the judge of all things. God put man in charge of all things concerning the earth. God judges what man does or doesn't do. Look at this in Judges 2.11. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals, these gods, these false fake gods, these phony gods. Verse 14, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. Some simple questions here. Who did the plundering? Obviously, it was their enemies. Who permitted or allowed this to happen? Did God cause or allow? Did he cause or allow? If he allowed this, is it his will? Now, these are interesting questions, maybe causing you to ponder and to think. If this plundering was God's divine will for them, then we have to say that the reason he allowed it was his will too. Look at Judges 1, 11 and 12. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the bells and they forsook the Lord God and they followed other gods and bowed to them. To say that the plundering was God's will is to say it was God's will for them to serve other gods and do evil things like killing the prophets and sacrificing babies. Obviously, that is not God's will. So what are we saying? Well, God makes his will known. He makes his word known and accessible. In fact, he said in Deuteronomy 30, he said, you can't say that my word is across the ocean and I don't have a boat to go there. I'm paraphrasing, but you can't say that his word is on Mars and we don't have a spaceship that can get us there. No, his, he said his word is near you. He said it's in your heart and in your mouth. We found that out in Romans 10 as well. And he was saying, listen, I put my word, I've given revelation of myself, my heart, my character, my intention. I've revealed my will to you. I've expressed what I want to do for you and through you and uh, on behalf of you and your people. But if you reject my counsel, then that's a decision you make in light of the options, I guess, that are presented to you. And we find out who the one is, really, in Genesis, who, prevent, who presents all these counter options. Well, it's the enemy of our soul. It's the devil. And we find out that he is tricking, tempting, deceiving us 
working us against the laws of God so that we would bring judgment upon ourselves. God doesn't really want to do this. So in that sense, he's not the active agent, but he is the one that has to uphold the law. He's not going to lie for anybody. He's not going to lie for you. He's not going to lie for the devil. He's not going to lie. God's not a liar. He's truthful. But it's the devil who gets us to bring upon judgment upon ourselves by rejecting God, friends. Hallelujah. So I hope that help helps because uh, there's some things that even now the devil would love to put on God and blame God for, and it's not God doing any of it. But listen, if you and I persist in rebelling against him, guess what happens? God's not going to be mocked, but we're going to bring judgment on ourselves. And that's what's happening. That's what's been foretold. People have had the counsel of God's word and will. We've had uh, prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers uh, on the earth and the word of the Lord has gone forth and people have been given an opportunity saying, look, you need to uh, accept Jesus so that you don't have to endure the wrath of God that's coming. Yet people ignore, reject, and go on about their way. But I'm telling you, friends, the Bible has already foretold a time of judgment coming where God can no longer uh, withhold the consequences associated with man's sin and depravity. But you and I, if you're born again, the Bible says you are not appointed to wrath, meaning we're going to escape it, friends. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for it. We are going to escape it. Uh, let's see here. Let's get back to a couple thoughts here. Let me find out where we need to jump in here. Um, so we read this verse in uh, Nahum 1, 2. It says, God is jealous and he avenges. Uh, his vengeance is furious, the Bible says, and he will take vengeance on his adversaries. Uh, and then it says this, he reserves wrath for his enemies. Another reason you and I need to take full confidence in, be completely assured that you and I aren't going to be here during that great tribulation time. The Bible says it'll be a time of the wrath of God. It will be unlike any other time that has happened on the earth. Another reason why you and I need to take confidence that we're not going to be here because we're not an enemy of God. Now look at this in James 4, verse 4. Who are the enemies of God? Who, who, who are these enemies? If he reserves wrath for his enemies, what makes somebody an enemy of God? James 4, 4, it says, adulterers and adulteresses. Boy, that's strong language right there. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. There you go, friends. Who might have to endure the wrath and indignation of God that's coming upon the earth shortly? Anybody who loves the world. The Living Bible says this, you are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Don't you realize that making friends with God's enemies, the evil pleasures of this world, makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy the evil pleasure of the unsaved world, you cannot 
also be a friend of God. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Look at this in another verse here. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. And we'll look at this from another angle. Uh, let me get there. There it is. First, first John, or is it Second John? Let's see. No, yeah. First John chapter two. Uh, let me turn there. It says this in verse fifteen: Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him so that would make you what if the love of the father is not in you what would that make you that would make you an enemy of god if the love of the father cannot be found in you friend you are not a friend of god you are an enemy of god now what is going to uh, set you up to become an enemy loving the world or the things in the world why he goes on to say he says for all that is in the world the lust of it the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These things are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And he talks about little children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, capital A Antichrist is coming. He hasn't come. He is coming. But even now, many lowercase Antichrist, this is the spirit of Antichrist. These are the operatives setting the stage, if you will, trying to rush things along, but there's a restrainer here, praise God. But many lowercase antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. If you love the world, friends, and the things of it, and then it even adds this, that if, if you don't do the will of God, you are an enemy of God. And guess what is coming for you? there will be judgment that will come upon you. You don't want to be in that situation. Now, uh, let's read John 15, 13. This is what Jesus says about the new creation or the born-again believer that is alive in himself. This is what it says. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if... You do whatever I command you. Notice, referencing back to 1 John 2, verse 17, it says, The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who abides, excuse me, but he who does the will of God abides forever. If we just flip that around, if you don't obey God, you will not live forever, meaning you are not going to have life if you continually persist to disobey in disobedience if you reject god time and time and time and time again and time again and time again you're not going to be included friends in those who are going to escape judgment or the wrath of god wrath comes upon enemies and if you reject god you are not his friend jesus says but great love have i for you because you are my friends and he goes on, they say, you are my friends because you do what I command you to do. Listen, get it together, friends. <laughs> Hallelujah. <clears throat> remember that verse, Philippians, I think it's chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus said, I'm going to give you a helper. Well, in Philippians 2, speaking of Holy Spirit, it says it is he 
who is helping us both to will and to do. Our job is to just yield to that supernatural empowerment from within. And from within, we desire to do what is right, and we have help to accomplish it. John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus offered his life in exchange for us when we accepted his substitution and put our trust in him. At that moment, friends, we became his friends. If you are a friend to Jesus, you are not God's enemy, but rather even the Father calls you friend. Hallelujah. Now let's close today with reading Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans 3. And it says, verse 25, this is the Living Bible, for God sent Christ Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to end all God's anger towards us or against or against us. He used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from his wrath. In this way, he was being entirely fair, even though he did not punish those who sinned in former times. For he was looking forward to the time when Christ would come and take away those sins. Go over to Romans chapter 5, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Referring to Jesus, Jesus is the one delivering us from the wrath. Hallelujah. Well, I'm out of time. Well, this podcast went by fast. We're out of time. But I want you to know that we are not appointed. We do not have an appointment with the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 in the NASB Bible says, referring to Jesus, he will save us from all of God's wrath to come. Hallelujah, friends. Oh, wow, wow, wow. See, there's something going to be poured out on the earth because man has persisted in rejecting God. I'm telling you, friends, judgment is coming upon the world that has rejected God. There's only you know, in, by comparison, there's only a few people, a small remnant that has trusted God. This is why Romans also tells us that the Heavenly Father, he subjected all things to futility in hope. He knew how it was going to work, and they're bringing upon themselves the consequences of not rejecting the king's counsel. Oh, uh, excuse me, they're bringing upon themselves the consequences of rejecting the king's counsel, but not you and I, friends, because we have turned our hearts to Jesus. Now, if you're listening and you are not born again, do not delay except Jesus today. Jesus is our deliverer from the wrath that's coming, friends. And I'm telling you, you don't want to be here. You don't want to risk it. The Bible says that some will survive the tribulation period. Millions will die. Some will survive. I wouldn't risk it, friends. Get a hold of Jesus today and ensure your deliverance from the wrath to come. Well, join me back here next week. We'll pick this thought up and go a little bit further. 
We're so glad that you tuned in. Listen, we've got a studio project that we're doing here. We've got a building on our property that we're going to build out and put three studio sets in there. I'm asking you would consider, prayerfully consider, partnering with us and accomplishing that vision. We can do more together, and we'll be able to create more content with those three studio sets over there. So if you want to get involved, you can go to our website, www.gracecitychurch.tv forward slash give, and in the drop-down menu, select the studio project. I thank you in advance, friends, for considering how you may partner with us in our new studio project. Well, this has been the Grace for This City podcast. And until next time, my friends, be blessed.